biblical principles concerning unselfishness. Luke, the second chapter, beginning with the eighth verse, concerning the birth of Jesus Christ. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Another translation says peace to men of goodwill. Peace to men of goodwill. As we are contemplating Christmas time, and some of you will remember it wasn't too long ago, I had them announce that there were 300 and some day shopping days left for Christmas. And of course we got a big laugh out of it, but now all of a sudden it's right upon us. It happened so suddenly. But Christmas time has, is a special time of the year for many people. For others it's a very depressing time of the year. And in most, in most cases, the depressing part comes because their focus is in the wrong direction. We are to not look at our circumstances, but rather look at God as our provider. And Christmas time should be a time when we begin to think of others, and, and actually we should be doing it all year long, but I mean it becomes a time when we begin to think more carefully concerning other people and have more of a sense of care for them. You know, at Thanksgiving time and Christmas time we like to express care to those that are not as fortunate as we are in some areas and are really trying to, to uh, get ahead and get on their feet. And it's a time when we remember our loved ones. How many of you know that Christmas time is a very traditional time? That's when everybody starts doing certain things every year in a certain way and they hate to break those traditions. Uh, sometimes things happen in families where the traditions are broken whether we want them to be or not. But it's a time of remembrance and it's a time of renewing friendships sending out Christmas cards, contacting people. It's a time when we forget ourselves many times and, and begin to express to others. And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we could get into the habit of not doing it just at Christmas time, but if all year long we would express our love and our concern and our care for other people around about us. Now I want to tell you something. It's, that's getting becoming more difficult every day we live in this society. As you begin to listen to some of the programs that are appearing on television today, the anger and the violence and the uh, hatred and the, the bitterness and the resentment you feel just pouring, spewing out of people's mouths and, and the responses from, from the audiences uh, to anything that has to do with caring and loving. It's amazing how quickly we're seeing things change. But this is supposed to be a time of caring. But we have to understand that in the very last days we're going to see a tremendous change take place in our, in our society and that it's expressed in 2 Timothy, the third chapter. Turn there with me, if you will, please. Second Timothy, the third chapter. I'm going to read to you from the Living Bible the first five verses of Second Timothy, the third chapter. You may as well know this too, Timothy, that in the last days it's going to be very difficult to be a Christian. In the last days it's going to be very difficult to be a Christian. Uh, when do you suppose the last days are going to come? Well, who's this written to then? Please, please don't act surprised when it's not easy to be a Christian. Please don't say, why didn't somebody tell me? Why didn't somebody make me aware of this? I thought it was going to be wonderful to walk with the Lord. I thought it was just going to be 
happiness and joy and peace. And that's why I have problems with some of our televangelists. Paul said, Timothy, get ready for it because in the last days it's going to be difficult to be a Christian. Any of you finding it very easy to be a Christian nowadays? Or are you finding it more difficult every day? At work? In society? In the last days it's going to be very difficult to be a Christian. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be proud and boastful, sneering at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful to them, and thoroughly bad. Oh, I'd hate to live in those days, wouldn't you, when people were dis disrespectful to their parents? Wouldn't that be terrible? Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a day and age when people were disrespectful to their parents' kids were? Can you imagine what that would be like? I'm sure none of you have ever experienced anything like that or seen it around you, have you? you with me? I'm reading, the, I'm reading the newspaper, reading today's newspaper right here. They will be hard-headed and never give in to others. They will be constant liars and troublemakers. They'll think nothing of immorality. Oh, he's talking about the world. Isn't it atrocious that today there's many in the church that think nothing of immorality? You say, Pastor, you're stretching it? No, I've read the latest survey. Absolutely incredible. Large percentages of church members, committed church members, they call them, people who regularly attended church, see nothing wrong with promiscuity, see nothing wrong with premarital sex, see nothing wrong with once in a while if you happen to have an occasional affair outside your marriage. I just blink my eyes and say, this can't be so. You can't sit in the church. But if you don't hear the Word of God and you're not taught biblical principles, it can happen. You can die in a pew if you're sitting in a church and are not taught biblical principles. They will be rough and cruel and sneer at those who try to be good. Oh, you think people are going to love you because you're a Christian? It's going to get worse. They sneer at those who try to be good. In fact, I know of two children that got on a bus up here in Volusia County. Uh, their parents were Christians. They moved into the town for a little while. When they got on the bus and the, the rest of the kids found out they wouldn't take dope, they pinned them up against the wall and threatened, you'll either take it or we'll beat you half to death. And they slapped them around, and by the time they got off the bus, they were terrorized and ran all the way home and just screaming. These kids says, no, we don't want any of that. We won't have anything to do with that. And the rest of the kids sneered at them and were going to try to force them into drugs. They had to actually change school so these children would not have to be under that kind of pressure. They will betray their friends. They will be hot-headed, puffed up with pride, and prefer good times to worshiping God. Isn't that interesting? Prefer good times to worshiping God. If you don't think that's today, go out on, stand out on next to I-4 on Sunday. and see people flying everywhere except the church. They're going to the beach. They're going to Disney World. They're going everywhere else. They prefer having a good time to worshiping God. They will go to church, yes, but they won't really believe anything they hear. Listen to that. Isn't that incredible? They'll go to church, but they won't believe anything they hear. You think that's not depressing to a preacher? <laughs> you study all week to try to present something and just look, look for it. When they come in, they're going to listen to you, but they're not going to believe what you're saying. Now, I've, seen it. I've seen it in families. I've seen it in children coming into families. Children sit there like... I've just turned you off, preacher. I don't hear a thing you say. Boy, have I ever tricked that preacher. I don't listen to a word he says. And you want to know something? You lose. You lose. Because in that day, you'll never be able to point your finger at me and say, you didn't tell me. You lose. But they won't really believe anything they hear. Don't be taken in by people 
like that. Don't be taken in by people like that, he said. Let me just give you the dictionary's uh, definition of the word selfishness. Caring unduly or supremely for oneself. Everybody's first right after me. Secondly, a disposition to pursue personal advantage. A disposition to pursue personal advantage. Yes, it isn't I don't want you to succeed, I just want me to succeed more than you do. Yes, I do want you to be able to have your needs met right after I get my needs met. Yes, I'd like for you to have that next position up if I get the one above that. Always pointing in toward me. And let me tell you something, what I see in many, many families today, not, not just in the world, but in the church also. I see children growing up and they're concerned about one thing, and that's Mr. Me first. Mom and Dad, you get in line, we're first. Our needs are first, what we want. What you want, that's tough, but we've got to have... I want to tell you something. In the days ahead, as our economy begins to go the direction that our teacher on financial, Larry Burkett, in the direction he says it's going to go, we better be prepared for it because our children are not accustomed not being able to have everything they want in many of our families today. The parents are so intimidated, they will go down to stores and buy all these name brand uh, outfits for their kids at any cost and these very expensive tennis shoes and these very expensive uh, suits, outfits, because they don't want their kids to feel like they are not right with the rest of the gang. We are setting up a disaster for the days ahead. Thirdly, regarding one's own comfort, advantage, etc., in disregard or at the expense of that of others. Doesn't make any difference what it costs anybody else. I want what I want. That's selfishness. And the Scriptures give us some types of selfishness. The first one is the attitude of let John do it. Let somebody else do it. In Numbers 32, verse 6, Moses is talking to Reuben and Gad. Remember when they came into the promised land, they said, hey, we don't have to cross over the river, Jordan. We love this land right here. Why don't we just let our people stay right here and claim this land and, and then we can go conquer the rest of it. And Moses says, now wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that... Uh, you want your brothers to go to war? Number 32, 6 says, Shall your brothers go to war, and shall ye sit here? Of course, they said, absolutely not. We will even go ahead of all the rest of the tribes. We'll go into the other land ahead of the rest of the tribes. We'll help conquer it. We won't come back until every area has been conquered. And when it's all done, and everybody has got what they're supposed to have, then we'll come back here. And then Moses said, uh, If you don't do it, be sure your sin will find you out. But there are many people today that uh, want someone else to do what has to be done. So why isn't this being done? Why should, can't we get somebody to do that? I, I like what one pastor said one time. He, his church was absolutely 100% full of willing people. Another pastor heard that and came up to him and said, Wait a minute, brother, are you telling me that all the people in your church are willing? He said, Every single one of them. He said, I've never heard of it. He said, Well, I'm sure the same thing is true in your church. He said, Are you kidding? He's loving. He says, in our church, he says, 5% of the people are willing to do the work and the other 95% are completely willing to let them do it. But they're full of willing people. Let somebody else do it. But you know, that isn't God's principle. That's a selfish principle. The real principle is maturity. I remember the illustration or the definition I gave you of maturity? Maturity is producing more than you consume. And if every one of us take that attitude when we come into the doing the work of the Lord, I want to produce more in this ministry than I consume. 
you'll suddenly see a tremendous upsurge in the ministry. You'll begin to see the growth of the ministry. You'll begin to see exciting things happen in the ministry when we don't say, let somebody else do it, but how, what can I do? How can I become involved? How can I be a blessing and add to the ministry here? The people say, well, I'm just so busy. I've got this over here to do and that over here to do and that. And the time comes when you have to say, wait a minute, are we setting priorities in an improper order? The Word says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The Word of God also says that we are committed to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we are to come together and be a witness and a lighthouse in the community. Well, that means all of us. But you know, there are many people who come to church and go home and come to church and go home and come to church and never have time to become involved. And I want to tell you something. God, the time is coming when God's going to begin to expect all of us to become involved deeply in the work of the ministry if we're going to accomplish anything for the Lord. The second one, the second aspect or type of selfishness in the Scripture is found in Genesis 4-9 when Cain was speaking and God was speaking to Cain. He said, get off my back. I'm not my brother's keeper. I like the answer Jesus gave to that question in Luke the 10th chapter. In Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. Let me turn to it for you. Luke the 10th chapter. Beginning with verse 25. One day an expert on Moses' law came to test Jesus' orthodoxy by asking him this question. Teacher, what does a man need to do to live forever in heaven? Jesus replied, what does Moses' law say about it? It says, he replied, that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you must love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you'll live. The man wanted to justify his lack of love for some kinds of people, so he asked, which neighbors? Jesus replied with an illustration. A Jew going on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes and money and beat him up and left him lying half dead beside the road. By chance, a Jewish priest came along, and when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A Jewish temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there and then went on. But a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw him, he felt deep pity. Kneeling beside him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with medicine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his donkey and walked along beside him till they came to an inn. There he nursed him through the night. The next day he handed the innkeeper two $20 bills and told him to take care of the man. If his bill runs higher than that, he said, I'll pay the difference the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the bandit's victim? The man replied, the one who showed him some pity. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And Jesus said, yes. Love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? You be a neighbor. You be a neighbor. Don't worry about who you're neighboring, but you be a neighbor. Where you go, wherever you go, manifest my love. Manifest my compassion. Manifest my mercy. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter and the 24th verse from the Living Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. It says, Do not think only of yourself. Try to think of the other fellow too and what is best for him. Try to think of the other fellow too and what is best for him. I'm talking about biblical principles concerning unselfishness here. Unselfishness means we do as John the Baptist said of himself. He must increase, but I must decrease. It means we come to the place as Jesus did, 
being equal with God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Jesus said, As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. You and I are to go into the world and love our neighbors, ourselves, minister to others round about us. Love others. Find out what their needs are and minister to those needs in whatever way we possibly can. In the name of Jesus. So that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Not glorify you, not glorify me, but glorify our Father which is in heaven. I do this because I love Christ and I love you because I love Christ. If I didn't love Christ, you'd be in trouble probably. But because I love Him, I want to manifest Christ's love to you. Principle of unselfishness. Romans, the 14th chapter. Romans 14, beginning with the 14th verse. I want to read from the 14th verse down through the 3rd verse of the 15th chapter. Paul says, As for myself, I'm perfectly sure on the authority of the Lord Jesus that there's really nothing really wrong with eating meat that has been offered to idols. But if someone believes it is wrong, then he shouldn't do it because for him it is wrong. And if your brother is bothered by what you eat, you're not acting in love if you go ahead and eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Don't do anything that will cause criticism against yourself, even though you know what you do is right. Isn't that powerful? I've taught on this before years ago, but this is so important for people to understand it. And we're talking about unselfishness. Most people say, I can do whatever I want to do. I'm a Christian. I'm free. I'm not under bondage. Paul says, you have a liberty, but not a license. And we're restricted by what will, how will this affect others around me? Verse 17, for after all, the important thing for us as Christians is not what we eat or drink, but stirring up goodness and peace and joy from the Holy Spirit. If you let Christ be Lord in these affairs, God will be glad and so will others. In this way, aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Don't undo the work of God for a chunk of meat. Remember, there's nothing wrong with the meat, but it is wrong to eat it if it makes another stumble. Now again, for some of you who did not have heard this teaching before, he was talking about meat that had been offered to idols there in Rome. They could go there. If they had to go down to the meat market and buy meat, it might cost them $3 a pound. If they'd go to the temple, they had all these animals they'd killed, and they were the choice animals. They might be able to sell it, buy it there for $0.25 cents a pound. And logic says, boy, $3 a pound and $0.25, cents, I can give $2.75 a pound of that money that I'd normally spend to missions. So I can go buy that meat, and it's perfectly, it's choice and prime meat. I can go buy that. And Paul says if going there causes a weaker brother to stumble, somebody might go in there and get involved in that idol worshiping again. It's not worth the difference. Don't go in someplace where it might cause someone else to stumble. He said it's not worth destroying someone for a chunk of meat. Verse 21, the right thing to do is to quit eating meat or drinking wine or doing anything else. Boy, that really covers the, the field. Or doing anything else. I want to emphasize that. And some people say, well, I won't drink wine. And okay, meat's all right. But that anything else, that really stretches it out. It's, he's saying in every area of our life, we've got to be sensitive to what we do that might cause someone else to stumble. Or anything else that offends your brother or makes him sin. You may know, this is powerful, you may know that there's nothing wrong with what you do, even from God's point of view. But keep it to yourself. Don't flaunt your faith in front of others who might be hurt by it. In this situation, happy is the man who does not sin by doing what he knows is right. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? There's nothing wrong with this. This isn't displeasing to God. I enjoy this. I have a right to do this. He says, don't do it. Don't do it. Even if you know it's right. 
if it causes a weaker brother to stumble. Now see, that's the difference between uh, Reformation theology and holiness theology. Reformation theology says anything in moderation. All things in moderation. Whatever you want to do, just have fun. That isn't what Paul taught. That is not what Paul taught. Paul taught responsibility for those around us. Verse 23, but anyone who believes that something he wants to do is wrong shouldn't do it. He sins if he does, for he thinks it is wrong, and so for him it is wrong. Anything that is done apart from what he feels is right is sin. Chapter 15, even if we believe that it makes no difference to the Lord whether we do these things, still we cannot just go ahead and do them to please ourselves, for we must bear the burden, we must bear the burden of being considerate of the doubts and fears of others of those who feel these things are wrong. Let's please the other fellow, not ourselves, and do what is for his good, and thus build him up in the Lord. Christ didn't please himself. As the psalmist said, he came for the very purpose of suffering under the insults of those who were against the Lord. This is one of the most powerful portions of Scripture I could, I've, I've ever read. But Paul the Apostle says, if we're believers, we have died to ourselves and our own desires. We have to say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I want to do nothing that will offend and cause others to stumble. I want to walk before the Lord in such a way that when others look at my life, they'll not stumble and fall. I want to be a light to them. In other words, liberty, not license. Love, not lust. Is what Paul's teaching concerning a lack of or the absence of selfishness in our life. But God's called us to faithfulness. God has called us to unselfishness and commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We said last week that this is supposed to be the kind of giving spirit, Christmas time, that for the believer, it should not change at all. It ought to be just a continuation of that same spirit all year long. We gave you an illustration, a definition of the word selfish, meaning caring unduly or supremely for yourself. Someone said if you are all wrapped up in yourself, you're a very small package. A disposition to pursue personal advantage regarding one's own comfort, advantage, etc., in disregard or at the expense of that of others. We said there's two aspects of it, of selfishness. The first one is, let somebody else do it. I am not going to take my time and give my effort and use my talents. Let somebody else do it. I'm going to use my own for myself. The second one is, why me? I came to this. Am I my brother's keeper? Jesus said we are to be the people, we are to be the neighbor. We are to take the responsibility to witness others and love others. And uh, I, I've been seeing lately on uh, television where Christians are going around, one, one group of Christians in, I believe it's in California, going around knocking on the doors asking if they can come in and clean people's bathrooms. And explaining to them they're doing it to show them that they love Christ enough that they're willing to do anything to get into their homes and tell them what Jesus Christ means to them. And the national news picked this thing up, and, and these young people going in with all these different chemicals and things, clean bathrooms. And I thought, you know, that's kind of humbling, and that's kind of almost scary. It would be very dangerous if they did. But they said there's no other way they could get into the houses and talk to people, and people are usually very happy for someone who wants to come in and scrub out their toilet. And uh, that has to take unselfishness on our part, putting down ourselves, humbling ourselves, that Jesus Christ may be exalted. This is the thing we're talking about. Last week we came to the point, biblical teachings on unselfishness. So we start with Proverbs, and I'm going to be using again Living Bible tonight, Proverbs, the 28th chapter. Proverbs 28, 
and verse 27. Proverbs 28, 27. If you give to the poor, your needs will be supplied. But a curse upon those who close their eyes to poverty. If you give to the poor, your needs will be supplied. That can't be much clearer, can it? Turn then to Deuteronomy, the 15th chapter. Deuteronomy, chapter 15, beginning with verse 7. Deuteronomy 15, 7. But if, when you arrive, God is speaking now to Israel, still in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land, but if, when you arrive in the land the Lord will give you, there are any among you who are poor, you must not shut your heart or hand against them. You must lend them as much as they need. Beware. Don't refuse a loan because the year of debt cancellation is close at hand. You'll know what they mean by the year of debt cancellation. The year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, if you had to sell your land in order to pay your debts and go work for someone else, that debt, that land could only held away from you until the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. So if in the 48th year or the 49th year you have a real financial need, God's saying, now don't say no, you can wait another year. He says, loan it to them even for that short period of time. In other words, if you are willing to loan them money and take over the property, even if it's for a year, you're to do it. God was concerned about the poor. Beware, don't refuse a loan because of the year of debt cancellation is close at hand. If you refuse, get this now. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy man cries out to the Lord, it will be counted against you as a sin. You must lend him what he needs and don't moan about it either. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to do what God tells you and another thing not to grumble about it when you're doing it. Isn't it interesting how God knows our, our disposition and our nature? He said to him, I'm not telling you just to do it. I'm telling you to do it and do it gladly. Do it with the right attitude. Don't moan about it either, for the Lord will prosper you in everything you do because of this. I don't know how much clearer that can be. Here's a biblical principle. God says, if you'll bless and take care of the needs of the poor around you, I will see to it that you prosper. I know of an unsaved man. Years ago I knew, and that man, totally unsaved, had been an alcoholic. Everywhere he'd go, he'd give to people. And I never saw anything like this man that had work come to him, jobs come to him, money come to him. Come back to the time you say, non-Christian, non-Christian, yes, this is a universal law. Given it shall be given unto you, pressed on, shake together, running over from men, given your boot. I believe it's a universal law. That's why uh, R.G. Lutherland used to say, I don't care if you go to church anywhere. I don't care if you're a Christian. I'm telling you a principle here. You will give 10% of your profits every year and give it into a Bible-believing church. You check your books off at the end of the year, and if your CPA says you've lost one penny, you send me that, that paperwork. I'll send you a check to cover every penny you lost. He said, I've never had to send a penny because it works. For the Lord will prosper you in everything you do because of this. There will always be some among you who are poor. That is why this commandment is necessary. You must lend to them liberally. Chapter 24 of the same chapter. Chapter 24 of Deuteronomy. Beginning with verse 19. If, when reaping your harvest, you forget to bring in a sheaf from the field, what's a sheaf? A little bundle of, of grain. They would bundle it up in sheets. You forget to bring in a sheaf from the field. Don't go back after it. 
leave it for the migrants, orphans, and widows. Then the Lord God will bless and prosper all you do. When you beat the olive from your the olives from your olive trees, don't go over the boughs twice. Leave anything remaining for the migrants, orphans, and widows. It's the same for the grapes in your vineyard. Don't gleam the vines after they are picked, but leave what's left for those in need. Remember that you are slaves in the land of Egypt. This is why I'm giving you this command. He never forget the fact that you were in a place of need at one time, and you were grateful for anything you could receive. He said, remember that when you start dealing with other people. In the New Testament, turn over to 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. Verse 15. Paul says, He died for all, so that all who live, having received eternal life from Him, might live no longer for themselves, to please themselves, but to spend their lives pleasing Christ, who died and rose again within. He said the reason Christ gave us life is so that we don't have to live for ourselves and we're to live for others around us. Turn to the 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians, beginning with verse 10. I want to suggest that you finish what you started to do a year ago, for you were not only the first to propose this idea, but the first to begin doing something about it. Having started the ball rolling so enthusiastically, you should carry this project through to completion just as gladly, give it just as gladly, giving whatever you can out of whatever you have. He said, you started this giving program. Now he said, don't slack off on it. Continue to do so. Let your enthusiastic idea at the start be equaled by your realistic action now. If you're really eager to give, then it isn't important how much you have to give. God wants you to give what you have, not what you haven't. Of course, I don't mean that those who receive your gift should have an easy time of it at your expense, but you should divide with them. Right now, you have plenty and can help them. Then at some other time, they can share with you when you need it. In this way, each will have as much as he needs. Remember what the scripture says about this? He that gathered much had nothing left over, and he that gathered little had enough. So you also should share with those in need. Isn't that beautiful person? Right now, you may not have anything, but later on you may have something and somebody else might not have anything. But later on you might not have anything and somebody else will have something. And he says, you must minister to each other unselfishly. Because if you don't do it when you have opportunity, you may not have received when you have need. Galatians, the sixth chapter. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 and verse 10. Verse 2, share each other's troubles and problems, and so obey our Lord's name. If anyone thinks he is too great to stoop to this, he's fooling himself, he's really a nobody. Men, present, share with each other's troubles and problems. What does that mean? When somebody else has a load, help them. When you have a load shirt with somebody else, let them help you too. A lot of people, you know, have problems, don't have a problem with, with uh, sharing other people, sharing other people's problems, but they have trouble with somebody else's problem. This is just down to earth, earth preaching here, teaching that's essential for us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't just think about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and in what they are doing. 
Your attitude should be the kind that was shown by Jesus Christ, who, though he was God, did not demand and cling to his rights as God, but laid aside his mighty power and glory, taking the disguise of a slave and becoming like men, and he humbled himself even further, going so far as actually to die a criminal's death on the cross. He said, that's the attitude you and I must have. Don't be selfish and don't live to make a good impression on other people. James, the second chapter. James, chapter 2. In verse 14. Dear brothers, what's the use of saying that you have faith in a Christian if you aren't proving it by helping them? If we could just get that message down in our hearts tonight, we would be home. How good is to say that you're a Christian if you aren't proving it by helping others? Will that kind of faith save anyone? If you have a friend who is in need of food and clothing and you say to him, well, Goodbye, and God bless you. Stay warm and eat hearty. And then don't give him clothes or food. What good does that do? You see, it isn't enough just to have faith. You must also do good to prove that you have it. Faith that doesn't show itself by good works is no faith at all. It's dead and useless. Can't get much stronger than that. First John, the third chapter. First John, third chapter, beginning with the fourteenth verse. If we love other Christians, it proves that we have been delivered from hell and given eternal life. If we love other Christians, it proves. If we love other Christians, it proves. What does it prove? It proves that we are that we have been delivered from hell and given eternal life. Some people say, "Well, there's faith plus nothing." And over and over again, it says evidence of faith. Is important. It's not what you say, it's what you do. If you really love Christ, he says, faith is, faith is manifested by what you do. You can say you love God all you want to, but if you don't show it in your daily life, he says, he that says he loves me does not keep my commandments. He's a liar, the truth is not in him. God wants us to manifest the fact that we've been saved, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But a person who doesn't have love for others is headed for eternal death. Anyone who hates his Christian brother is really a murderer at heart, and you know that no one wanting to murder has eternal life within. I think of the time when a person said to me one time, well, I guess the best thing I can do is go kill my partner, then I'll be free to remarry. They just told me they weren't even saved in the first place. They make a stupid statement like that, that they would think of going and killing their partner so they'd be free to remarry. I didn't say it. John said it. Anyone who hates his Christian brother is really a murderer at heart, and you know that no one wanting to murder is has eternal life within. We know what real love is from Christ's example in dying for us. And so we also ought to lay down our lives for our Christian brethren. But if someone who is supposed to be a Christian has money enough to live well and sees a brother in need and won't help him, how can God's love be within him? Little children, let us stop just saying we love people. Let us really love them and show it by our actions. Then we will know for sure by our actions that we are on God's side and our consciences will be clear, even when we stand before the Lord. But if we have bad consciences and feel that we have done wrong, the Lord will surely feel it even more. And He knows everything we do. We'll talk about the results of selfishness in the Bible. In Haggai, the, third, uh, the first chapter. Haggai, the first chapter. In verse 3. 
His reply to, well, let me start off at the beginning of the message. This one says, and the message from, a message from the Lord to Haggai the prophet who delivered it to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, for it was addressed to them. In late August, the second year of the reign of King Darius the first, why is everyone saying it is not the right time for rebuilding my temple, asked the Lord? His reply to them is this, it is, is it then the right time for you to live in luxurious homes when the temple lies in ruins? Look at the result. You plant much and harvest little. You have scarcely enough to eat and drink and not enough clothes to keep you warm. Your income disappears as though you are putting it into pockets filled with holes. Think it over, says the Lord of hosts. Consider how you've acted and what's happened as a result. Then go up into the mountain and bring down timber and rebuild my temple and I'll be pleased with it and appear there in my glory, says the Lord. You hope for much. But get so little, and when you bring it home, I blow it away. It doesn't last at all. Why? Because my temple lies in ruins, and you don't care. Your concern is, own, is, is your own fine home. This is why I'm holding back the rain from heaven and giving you such scant crops. In fact, I've called for a drought upon the land. Yes, and in the highlands, too. A drought to wither the grain and grapes and olives and all the other crops. A drought to starve both you and all your cattle and ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Powerful. They're saying, the only thing, he said, the only thing you're thinking about is yourself. All you're concerned about is getting your nice home built. You couldn't care less about the thing. God hates selfishness. Malachi, the first chapter, being the sixth verse. A son honors his father. A servant honors his master. I am your father and master, yet you don't honor me, O priest, if you despise my name. Who, us, you say? When did we ever despise your name? When you offer polluted sacrifices on my altar. Polluted sacrifices? When have we ever done a thing like that? Every time you say, don't bother bringing anything very valuable to offer to God. You tell the people lame animals are all right to offer on the altar of God? Yes, even the sick and the blind ones. You claim this isn't evil? Try it on your governor sometime. Give him gifts like that and see how pleased he is. God have mercy on us, you sight. God be gracious to us, but when you bring that kind of gift, why should he show you any favor at all? Oh, to find one priest among you who would shut the doors and refuse this kind of sacrifice. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll not accept your offering. But my name will be honored by the Gentiles from morning to night. All around the world they will offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you dishonor saying that my altar is not important and encouraging people to bring cheap, sick animals to offer to me. Oh, you say, oh, it's too difficult to serve the Lord and do what he asks. And you turn up your noses as the rules, at the rules he has given you to obey. Think of it. Stolen animals, lame and sick, as offerings to God? Did I accept such offerings as these? Ask the Lord. Cursed is that man who promises a fine ram from the flock and substitutes a sick one for a one to sacrifice to God. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be mightily revered among the Gentiles. Luke, the sixth chapter, uh, admonitions against selfishness. Luke 6, beginning with verse 32. Do you think you deserve credit for merely loving those who love you? Even the godless do that. And if you do good only to those who do you good, is that so wonderful? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, what good is that? Even the most wicked will lend to their own kind for full return. Love your enemies. 
do good to them, lend to them, and don't be concerned about the fact that they won't repay. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as sons of God, for he is kind to the unthankful and to those who are very wicked. Try to show as much compassion as your father does. Never criticize or condemn, or it will all come back on you. Go easy on others. Then they will do the same for you. If you give, you will get. Your gift will return to you in full and overflowing measure, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more and running over. Do I need to read that verse again? That last verse 38 again. For if you give, you'll get. Now the King James says, Given it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over shall men give into your bosom. This is a promise from God. I had some people say, you know, nobody's ever interested in my needs. I said, what are you giving? Well, I've got all these needs. I said, nothing good. What are you giving? Well, if I had it, I'd give. I said, you don't understand the principle. You've got to give to get. If you have to give of your time, if you have to give of your talents, if you have to just spend time going and ministering to somebody else that has a greater need than you, go and say, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm giving of myself. And God says, when you give, it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over to men giving you a boost. It's a universal law and a principle here you can't avoid. This is why it behooves a Christian not to be selfish. Because God says your, your unselfishness begins a flow that comes back to you. Now, if you do it like you're investing in the stock market, well, I did this, now God, you owe me this, the motivation is wrong, everything dies right there on the spot. You must do it out of a heart full of love for other people. If you really love other people, how many mothers do you know when their children get sick, they tend to them at the bedside and then write down on a little sheet on the side of the paper, the side of the bed, you owe me now three more hours. You're going to pay dearly for this one. I mean, I didn't know I was going to have to clean up that mess. You're going to have to pay. You don't even think of that as a mother or a father. You're just, you just love them so much. You just, the only thing you're concerned about is they get okay. And our motivation should be the very same when we minister to others. Give to others. And God says, that's the way it's going to be coming back to you. And then he says, with whatever measure you measure, it shall be measured unto you again. Some people say, well, why aren't the blessings really flowing into my life? What are you using to dispense blessings? You use an eyedropper, God will use an eyedropper. You use a shovel, God will use a shovel. You use a front loader, God will use a front loader. I've always felt that this is what he's trying to say here. With the same measure that you measure, it shall be measured back to you again. But it will be measured pressed down, shaken together, running over, and then get into your boots. Romans 13. We've had people say, you know, Pastor, I just don't have enough to give. I just read to you a while ago, a verse says, you don't have to give what you don't have, but give some of what you have. God does not expect you to give what you don't have. And you see, he's not just talking about money. He's talking about where you just care for other people, where you give yourself to other people. Help them in their needs. Encourage them. Take your talents, whatever talents you have, and say, I'm just going to dedicate this to the Lord and use it for the, for the glory of the Lord. Here. I, I'm not going to charge you for this at all. I'm just glad to do it for you. If God's giving you the ability to do something that other people can't, and you see that there's a need there, minister that talent, that gift to the body. God says, when you give to the poor, he gives back. Press down, shake together, running over, and then give into your bosom. Romans, the 13th chapter, beginning with the 7th verse. Pay everyone whatever he ought to have. Pay your taxes and import duties gladly. 
Obey those over you and give honor and respect to those to whom it is due. Pay all your debts except your debt of love for others. Never finish paying that. For if you love them, you will be obeying all of God's laws, fulfilling all his requirements. If you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, you will not want to harm or cheat him or kill him or steal from him. And you won't sin with his wife or want what is his or do anything else the Ten Commandments say is wrong. All ten are wrapped up in this one, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love does no wrong to anyone. That's why it fully satisfies all of God's requirements. It is the only law you need. He said, if you want to fulfill this rule of not being selfish, just love somebody. Love them like you love yourself. Be as concerned about their needs as you are about your needs. And when you begin to let that love flow out of you, it will come back and flow back to you. God tells us that we're not to be selfish. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Christ so loved the world that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. God's people are to be the light of the world. Whether it's going door to door cleaning people's toilets, or the simply means going into a widow or a uh, person shut in's home and praying with them and reading the scripture to them, and, and if there's a need in their home, take care of it. I have uh, a neighbor across the lake from me. She has my phone number right there above her phone all the time. And uh, every once in a while I call and say, Are you doing okay? Is there anything you need? And every once in a while if I make some slice up some oranges, if I make some uh, caramels or anything like that, if I make some homemade soup, uh, I just run over and knock on the door and just say, Once in a love you. Here it is. And uh, she just doesn't know how, how to respond, doesn't know what to think about that. I don't ask for a thing from her. I don't expect anything from her. I just want to love her. Did the same thing with her husband. Now she's a widow. And you know you can make an impact in the community by that very thing. Showing that you're not thinking about what can I get, what can I get, what can I get, what can I get. How can I minister to them? It's a biblical principle that if you do, God says if you give the poor, then He will return back to you. You see, again, here's another principle that some people say, well, that brings you into bondage. No, these principles bring you into release and freedom. He says, God says, my thoughts for you are continually good. I'm telling you these things, so you'll learn how to succeed in life. Meditate upon my laws day and night, Gospel. He says, and everything you do will prosper. Whithersoever you go, you will prosper. What saith the Lord unto you, servant? Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee. Whithersoever thou goest. Why? Because he said, you're going to keep the laws of the man with the God before you. Every moment you're going to walk in obedience to God. And he says, you'll do that. You'll just obey. Love your neighbor as yourself. It will fulfill all the laws of You see, I hope some of you people say, I hope the parents got that tonight. Yes, see you too. Love people around you. Don't be so concerned about what they think about you. You be concerned about what they think about Jesus. Love them. Let Jesus flow out of your life to them. When others are nagging at them and yelling at them and putting them down and everything, walk over and say, I think you're all right. I think you're all right. I'm not helping anyone. I mean, they just it's all within the world. Father, I pray that you put into our hearts more and more today these biblical principles that will cause us to succeed. I thank you that your word is truth. And if we'll obey your word and operate by its principles, everything we do will prosper. We'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season. 
our leaves shall not wither, and whatsoever, whatsoever, whatsoever we do will prosper. That's the promise. I pray that we'll be prospering because we want to obey you. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.